0: I want to talk, uh, just musing again, just sharing thoughts about spirituality and where we find ourselves at today, especially those of us that have left the faith of our childhood or we've deconstructed some form or we've left organized religion or things like that. And um, not really sure where to begin with it, but we'll see where it goes. Anyway, I hope everybody's doing <clears throat> well out there. It's Sunday morning when I'm recording this in my home in Colorado, and so I hope uh everybody's having a good Sunday morning. And, again, if you're watching this later, whatever time it is for you, I hope that you're doing well. So I want to talk about um <laughs> something that I notice, some similarities that I notice about – um the biblical times, time and events, the way it's presented to us, specifically in the New Testament, and some similarities and some parallels that are going on today. I want to talk about this idea of a left-hand path and a right-hand path, and I'll identify that in a minute. And I want to talk maybe even a little bit about um, Lucifer and how Lucifer and Luciferianism sort of gets a bad rap because – uh of in the collective unconscious the way that archetype exists in our mind and in our thinking i've talked about that a lot on this channel and on this page but i keep going back to it because again we have some ideas that are so embedded in our unconscious and our subconscious that the first time we hear it or the first time a person hears it oftentimes unless they just resonate with it there is a lot of pushback because what's happening is all the references, all the information, all the memories that we have, all the uh, uh, the way our deep subconscious has been formed to think about these things. The first time you hear something that's really contrary maybe to what you thought or what you believed before, there's frequently going to be, some pushback. So <clears throat> if this just happens to be the first time that you're li- listening to me or the first time that you're watching this, I want to tell you a little bit about who I am, uh, just briefly for those of you that know who I am. I won't spend a lot of time on this, but if this is the first time you're hearing me, <clears throat> I just, uh, I'm a former pastor. I was raised in a uh, Christian home, Christian family, became radically saved in 1989 and poured my whole life into it, was a pastor for 20 years. And then in 2016, it really began before that, but 2016 was kind of the pivotal moment <clears throat> that's marked out in my memory. I really began to question and understand, well, I really began to question the faith And really began to, this began as a a journey into myself, really. Uh, taking a deep dive (laughs) into my own being, my own essence, my own ways of thinking. Sort of subconsciously spelunking, if you will, uh, to understand myself. And one of the things that I was confronted with, uh, was how much I was using a confirmation bias to develop my belief system. Now, for those of you who don't know what a confirmation bias is, confirmation bias is a term that's used uh, mostly by scientists. And the idea is that we all have, uh, if you begin with a hypothesis in an experiment, if you're getting grant funding for that, for your research, if you are trying to get tenured, uh, or you just have a predisposition to certain beliefs, It's very easy for you to want the research and the data to support your belief, your hypothesis. And so the scientific method has evolved, particularly over the 20th century, to try to help researchers identify their confirmation biases and to – Overcome those things. So, for example, in the early part of the 20th century, it was common practice for researchers and investigators when they were sharing the results of their experiments to manipulate the data, to have some aspects of the data that aren't included or aren't published because they didn't fit with the hypothesis, so confirmation bias simply says you begin with a hypothesis, and then what you what we're inclined to do as human beings, even researchers, even scientists, uh, people who are engaging in a methodology where they're trying to show that something is stabilized and repeatable through data through their experiments. The confirmation bias is is that we'll take data that supports what we think and what we believe, and then we will ignore data or we'll throw out data that maybe goes contrary to what we believe. So you're not getting a pure representation of data. And so this is why today you have scientific journals, you have uh, scrutiny, you have very strict rules about controls and things that are set up So that the the way that the experiment is designed so that the experiment is designed to really take the researcher or really take the observer out of the equation, take your experience and take your beliefs out of the equation so that we get a view or information from that experiment that's completely separate from the observer. That's important. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. And so. Really, like I said, 2016, even though it started, I think, around 2011, 2012, I really began to realize that I was presenting myself as a pastor, I was presenting myself as a preacher, as someone who was preaching truth, someone who was telling other people uh, the nature of reality, telling other people how to live their lives based on The scriptures based on the Christian faith and I began to realize that I was applying my own confirmation biases every time I'd open the Bible and read it I was applying my confirmation biases anytime I would be confronted with information that might challenge my deeply held beliefs my core beliefs beliefs that I had invested my life in and you can understand how this be easy to do you've invested your your time your energy your money, <laughs> your social uh, currency in a set of beliefs that you're presenting to others, then it becomes very, very easy to operate out of confirmation bias, especially if you are unconscious or unaware of your own confirmation bias. And most people are unconscious and unaware of their confirmation bias. And most people will never challenge their confirmation bias because It's very destabilizing. We have to have core beliefs. Uh, I I think it's so funny every time I hear uh, people talk about, uh, this isn't just a belief, this is something that I know, or this isn't a belief, this is something that I've experienced, and yet that in and of itself, or that somehow, you know, there's this higher realm of knowledge or experience that bypasses belief, And that in and of itself is a belief that there's a higher way beyond beyond beliefs or the beliefs don't matter. That in and of itself is a belief. So the way we're wired as human beings. And for those, again, that are being introduced to me, uh, the last uh, 10 years of my life has been spent in uh, clinical psychology and clinical psychological research. And so I have a little bit of an understanding about how the human brain and the mind works. Research in neuroscience and stuff like that. So we have, it's impossible really to go through life, to function in life without a set of beliefs, without a set of ideas. That's what gives us coherence in our lives. If we didn't have any beliefs, we would have no coherence. We would have no track to run. There would be no consistency. There'd be no way to develop any kind of patterns or habits in our lives that would lead to any kind of outcomes and quite frankly we would probably end up um, rightfully so in a psychiatric uh hospital getting <laughs> getting help because that's just the nature of who we are it's it's how we operate and so we have these deeply held core beliefs and if we start to challenge these deeply held core beliefs it becomes very uncomfortable Like I said, our beliefs give us coherence, and so it's a very destabilizing experience, which is why I prefer the term deconstruction when we're talking about stripping away aspects of our faith and aspects of our beliefs. Now, that's a deep rabbit hole. (laughs) That's a deep rabbit hole. To go down, because at, by the time you're done, when you realize everything is a belief, <laughs> that we live and operate off of our beliefs, and that beliefs are very, very subjective by their very nature, then what happens is is that you can deconstruct and deconstruct and deconstruct and deconstruct and deconstruct, and deconstruct until there's nothing left. Because I spent so much time in the Bible, whenever I'm talking about these topics and subjects, I can't help but refer back to scriptural references because my mind is just full of them. And so rather than, you know, fight against that, sometimes I try to implement that. So there's a, a verse of scripture in the Bible in Hebrews chapter 12. I want to say it's around verse 32 or something, but it's, it's towards the end of the book of Hebrews, towards the end of Hebrews chapter 12. And the writer of Hebrews says there is a time that's coming when everything that can be shaken will be shaken and only that which cannot be shaken will remain. And he says that which cannot be shaken, of course, from the perspective of the writer of the book of Hebrews is the kingdom of God, that God will shake everything in creation, everything in heaven and on earth will be shaken so that only that which cannot be shaken shall shall remain. And so I relate to that statement in a very personal way because the last few years of deconstruction has allowed everything to be shaken so what i'm trying to say is is that the moment i came face to face with my own confirmation biases and realized how i was putting information together and presenting it as a spiritual teacher or i'm sorry as a christian teacher as a christian leader and that kind of stuff that i was um uh Stripping down everything. And then in 2020, when we were all, uh, you know, sheltering in place and the world was really changing, then it kind of kicked into high gear for me. And I started to look at not just my uh, religious beliefs and faith, but I began to look at my political beliefs. I began to look at my value system and I began to realize that all of this was extremely subjective on my part. So once you tear apart everything, what's left for you? And I really do think that I got to a place where I know I got to a place where I questioned everything. I know I got to a place where everything was on the table. I know I got to the place where I was questioning everything from society and politics and religion to morality and ethics and when that was all stripped away, when I felt like I'd left no stone unturned, it's a very difficult psychological process. What was I left with? And at the end of the day, this is going to sound overly simplistic, not <laughs> nothing earth shattering here, but what I was left with was me. What I was left with was my conscious, my consciousness and my experience and my point of reference was me. So I suppose that I went through, if you know anything about Rene Rene Descartes and his philosophies and his approach and the statement, I think, therefore, I am. Descartes went through something very similar to this where there's a total stripping away of. The reality of how we think about the world out there till he got to the point the only thing I could be certain of is that I exist because I'm the thinker, I'm the observer. So this is kind of the reverse of the scientific method. And that's why I said I wanted to come back to this. Because, here's here's an interesting thing, I I think we will see a revolution, not in our lifetime, I really don't think we'll see it in our lifetime, Uh, we may not even see it in the next generation, but I think in the next hundred years or so, that, (laughs) it's always dangerous when you're predicting the future, right? But this is what I think, because of breakthroughs in quantum physics and stuff like this, I think that we are going to, I think the scientific method will change, because... As I said earlier, the scientific method is designed to remove the observer from the method so that you are not, so that the, the, the person conducting the research, the person conducting the investigation, the people on the team conducting the experiments, the scientific method, the way it exists today does everything to remove the observer from The outcome. Now this is built on a presupposition that in order to understand truth objectively, logically, in a linear fashion, in order to know exactly the nature of what something is out there, what the object is out there, in this case, the thing that's being studied, you have to completely remove the observer from the experiment. Now, quantum physics is changing this, and this is why I think that the scientific method needs to evolve and needs to change. I, I think there needs to be a deconstruction on every level <laughs> of what we're doing right now, and I'll come back to that in a minute and share why I think that. Because if you know anything about the famous uh, SLIT ex- experiment, in quantum physics, they discovered that the observer changes the nature of reality at a quantum level. That when you observe something, just the presence of the observer changed the way matter and material, the material world operated. And so I don't think we've even scratched the surface. And I'm not just saying this willy nilly again on my own. There are other researchers out there in the field of consciousness that have devoted their entire lives to studying what is this nature of consciousness. And more and more and more of them are coming out and saying, we've barely scratched the surface. We don't have a good answer for what is the nature of consciousness. We can't be content with a Newtonian uh, physics model. We can't be content with this sort of biological materialism model that says that I am just a that my consciousness is just the result of this gooey ball that's behind my skull that is a, a bunch of cells and neurons and ele- electrical uh, impulses and synapses and all that stuff, and then consciousness results from that. Uh, that is not a satisfactory answer to people who really study academically uh, through published research and things like that, the nature of consciousness. And so what I'm saying is the process that I went through was almost the reverse of that, was almost the opposite of that. Instead of looking at what is the nature of the reality of what's out there, I realized that everything I thought and believed and taught was shaky at best, was based on tradition was based on i mean just take the resurrection of of christ right the resurrection of jesus the historical man jesus or not historical man shout out to my friend Derek day who did a uh, podcast on thursday about did jesus really exist which i haven't had a chance to watch yet but i'm going to Uh, the entire basis of the christian faith regardless of what version of it a person subscribes to whether it's catholic or whether it's uh, Protestant or whether it's progressive or whether it's conservative or whether it's charismatic, the foundation of all of it is the idea of the resurrection, the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. And at the end of the day, the only way we can substantiate that is through the transmission of that story down through the ages, through the instrument of the church, through the, the, the organization and the people who embraced it from one generation and taught it to the next generation, and so on. And so the external validity of that is shaky, is what I'm trying to say. And if that's shaky, then rightfully so. The Apostle Paul (laughs) said in First Corinthians 15, you know, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. And my thought experiment that really I'll, I'll never forget uh, my wife Julie and I were sitting in a parking lot in Phoenix, Arizona in 2015, I think. I think it was um, late December of 2015. And we were just talking about some of these things and she had a lot of questions. She had a lot of struggles with things pertaining to things I was teaching, pertaining to things that we'd been taught as children. But she had never felt the freedom to ask those questions because as most of you know, that have been in these situations, uh, we don't like questions. We don't want investigation. We're here to tell you how it is. We're the ones in the know. We're, uh, and it's very patriarchal, right? It's, it's very much based on a hierarchy. Uh, we're the ones that have studied. We're the ones called. We're the ones authorized by God. We're the ones anointed to tell you how it is. And so we don't really welcome questioning. We don't really welcome curiosity or investigation. <laughs> And so we started talking about some of these things. And then just this thought experiment that said, if you want to break salvation down as it's taught within any stream of Orthodox Christianity, then you believe in an afterlife. You believe in a heaven that is all lights and love and joy. No more pain. No more curse. The former. Things have passed away, like it says in the book of Revelation. And the Christians get to go there. And then there's this reality of hell where it's the exact opposite of that. It's eternal darkness. It's eternal torment. It's pain and suffering. (laughs) And a person goes there for all eternity and we're told that God loves humanity so much that he gave his son Jesus to save us from that eternity, eternal conscious torment. But only if you get certain beliefs correct and those beliefs center around a historical person and a historical event. Or again, shout out to my friend Eric. Uh, you, you, you understand what I'm saying? I'm saying from the perspective of the church, you have to get a history lesson right and this is what this is what got me i was like wait a minute so what god's great plan of salvation was to save only those who got a history lesson right about who jesus was what he taught and about his death and about his resurrection so in other words we are told that we have to believe something that goes a thousand percent contrary to anything any of us know about death, that there is nobody, nobody in contemporary society, (laughs) as far as I know, I don't know everybody's experience, but there is nobody who dies and then comes back to life and then lives forever. It is the most counterintuitive thing about our own experiences. And we don't even get to talk to eyewitnesses. Now, you can say, well, the... You know, the gospel narratives themselves are eyewitness counts. I challenge you to look into that a little bit. Study that out for yourself <laughs> and see what you think when you're done, when you come away from that. Um, if you're interested in that, I would give a shout out to, uh, there's a book called, uh, the Bible tells me so by Pete Enns. Uh, and I, I challenge you just to, just to read that and then see what you think when you come away as far as eyewitness counts, but even if they were, even if they were eyewitness accounts, we're 2,000 years removed from that. So here's my point. And, and so, but does that even make sense? Like, does that even make sense? Like, God says, okay, I'm going to give you the most radical, the most crazy. And by crazy, I mean something that, that violates every norm of your own experience around death and say the way that you escape death is to believe that this guy died, raised from the dead, and lived eternally. And that's that's how I'm going to decide whether or not I save you or whether or not I don't save you. And then they pile on to you. Believe me, I've got this. They'll pile on to you and say that if you become uh, a believer and you've had, particularly if you've had mystical or spiritual experiences, and you question these basic core tenets of the faith, not only are you in danger of losing your salvation, you can lose your salvation and never get it back. You can lose it all for all eternity. Again, this comes from a a passage that they read in Hebrews chapter 6. But here's my point. At the end of the day, Is that really a great plan of salvation? (laughs) Oh, yeah, we're not going to do it in the information age where everybody could see it and everybody could have a testimony of it and they could decide for themselves. We're going to do it in a time period where even the preservation of historical fact is sketchy, where people didn't care as much about their ideas of truth were not Western enlightenment ideas of truth where there were fact checkers. (laughs) In other words, fake news and spinning narratives and stuff was the norm. So we're going to enter in in this time period and do this. And then we're going to decide your future for all eternity based on how credible you think that is or not. And that didn't make sense for me. I'll never forget just sitting there like, wow, that really makes no sense. So that's a little bit about my deconstruction process. But then that begs the question, what about atheism? You know, Aaron, are you an atheist? And I understand the logical arguments. I wouldn't even engage with atheism before, but I'm willing to engage in the arguments for it or the arguments against any kind of faith in a higher power or extra physical powers that are out there that are influencing our lives. I, I understand those arguments, and they're good arguments. But here was my issue. At the end of the day, all I had left was me and my own predisposition, my own nature, what's going to work for me, what's not going to work for me, and my past experiences. I'd had a lot of supernatural past experiences. I know I have friends out there that are like, how can this guy, this guy who experienced all these things, I was with him when certain supernatural events happened, like healings or miracles or signs and wonders and things like that, because that was part of the stream that I was into. You know, how can he go from those circumstances, those experiences to where he's at today? And I began to realize something that, what Christianity had offered me was a choice to deny everything I knew to be true about death in my own experience, to believe something that ran completely counter and contrary to what I knew in my own experience because someone else told me and they got it from people who lived 2,000 years ago. So what I was having to do was deny myself, deny my own experience, deny my own essence and reality of who I was in order to take someone else's word for it, in order to allow information out there coming from other sources to form me and tell me who I could be and who I couldn't be, to tell me what I had to believe And what I shouldn't believe to tell me how I should live and how I shouldn't live. And yet, at the end of the day, I'm the one that has to live the outcomes. I have to live the experiences of my beliefs. I have to live the experiences of my choices. The one thing I can't get away from is my own point of consciousness. I think, therefore, I am, right? So if I were to become an atheist because I like the arguments or because there are certain things about the things that I still believe and that I still practice that can't be measured or uh, substantiated or repeated in a laboratory, then I'm committing the same fundamental error that I did before. I'm going to have to deny my experiences because my experiences are my experiences. I don't expect anybody to believe them or not believe them. <clears throat> it was a consistent experience and has been a consistent experience. In my life, I have had consistent experiences of extrasensory perceptions. I've had consistent experiences of precognitions. I've had a consistent experiences of synchronicities. I've had consistent experiences of supernatural healing, of of money, supernatural, uh, and by supernaturally showing up, I don't mean it like appeared out of nowhere. I mean needing a certain amount of money and having someone gift. That amount of money to me without even knowing that I needed it or that I was praying for it i've had uh, other things that i've uh, pr- prayed for or set my intentions for and had synchronicities line up so that those things were answered if you will and it goes way 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 above any statistical anomaly but that 's just my experience and people can you know sit there you can sit there and you can judge me you can say that listen i don't i don't care about that. If I cared about other people's judgments, I'd still be preaching uh, in a pulpit somewhere. But what I'm saying is, I don't care if you believe that or not. I know those things to be true within myself. I know those things to be true about my own experiences. So to simply embrace a materialistic, logical model of life, number one, would be to commit the same fundamental error. I'd have to deny myself. I'd have to deny my own experiences and surrender myself and subject myself to a new groupthink, to a new societal thought, to a new social programming. And for me, fundamentally, that was the problem that I had with religion. Now this brings me to something that I've talked about on this channel before and that I've talked about in these podcasts and things before, and that is this idea of a left-hand path and a right-hand path. Aaron, what are you talking about? Left-hand path, right-hand path. So one of the temptations that I went through, and it was a temptation for me, was to jump out of one stream of thought and belief and religion, and spirituality, and jump into another stream of thought and belief and reality that made the most sense to me, that, again, fit with, on some level with my confirmation bias. It's like I want to protect those confirmation biases. I want to protect those core beliefs. I mean, this kind of uh, process is not for everybody. In fact, it's only for the few. To be honest, it's only for the few. There are very few people that can go through this kind of psychological trauma and come out on the other side and really be okay. Because, again, our core beliefs are so important to who we are as psychological beings. So the temptation was to kind of jump into... The New Age movement, because in the New Age movement, they, they believe in Jesus, they love Jesus, they love the angels. There's the duality of light and dark. Uh, people in the New Age movement create stories about people who are Luciferians or, uh, running the world or they're, they're still the same structures, the same polarities. It's just, now it's not a personal devil, it's, uh, a, a evil cabal. Uh, it's, now it's not a personal devil. There are good uh, aliens, you know, that are light bringers and here to raise the consciousness of humanity. And there are evil aliens that are here to suppress and stop that from happening and want to keep humanity in bondage. I found that to be a core tenet of most new age thought and, and teaching and stuff out there. And so it would have been very, very easy for me because that, that was away from the dogmas of the traditional Orthodox Christian faith, but it let me preserve the elements of it that were still part of my core beliefs and my core confirmation biases. And so it would have been very, very easy to just jump tracks. You see what I'm saying? Those are both examples of what uh, Madame Blavatsky, the founder of Theosophy in the last century, called Right-hand path, left-hand path. She was really, as far as I can tell from my research, she was the one that coined these terms that I'm using, right-hand path, left-hand path. Madame Blavatsky, again, the founder of Theosophy. Uh, and if I've got that wrong, somebody else knows differently, just leave it in the comments and be happy to be <laughs> educated on that. But from my research and what I can tell, she was the one that came up with these ideas of left-hand path right-hand path now they she got them from hinduism and the idea of the left-hand path comes from you know it's very ancient comes from the sanskrit and it means to be awakened it means to be one who does not follow the herd one who does not follow the crowd one who does not follow groupthink and a form of tantra yoga that involved part of the practice, part of the spiritual practice was embracing taboos. So they would hang out in graveyards. They would hang out in graveyards partly because it was taboo, but also part of the spiritual practice was to realize the, uh, how life is very temporary. And then from there, they would uh, get into uh, all kinds of group sex and, you know, they would violate the sexual norms. And, but it was considered a legitimate spiritual path. Madame Blavatsky took it and created again this dualism and even identified other, she was considered an occultist. She even identified other occultists as being on the left-hand path Um And so you saw these divisions and these fights going on within the spiritual circles and occult circles of the 20th century. I think even Arthur Waite, uh, who's famously, if you know anything about tarot, who famously created the Waite parts with Pam Coleman Smith, uh, I think he was one of the ones that was, that was on the list. I know him and Alistair Crowley went at it. And so it just, it, again, it's, it's this divisive sort of stuff. Our group's right. This group's wrong. Our path's right. This path's wrong. And so when I'm defining the left hand path, let me first define the right hand path. The right hand path is the path of outside in. It's, uh, it's the communal path. It's, uh, there's usually a hierarchy of some sort. There is, um, doctrines or a set of beliefs that you have to embrace. There's usually a guru or a spiritual teacher. And primarily there is this idea of sacrificing self, this idea of self-sacrifice that your thoughts, opinions, beliefs have to be sacrificed on the altar of the whatever community that you're part of. In Christian circles, it was the flesh. You have to give up the flesh. Your heart's wicked and evil. Your flesh is corrupt. You sacrifice yourself. You deny yourself. You take up your cross. You follow Jesus. It's very indicative of a right-hand path. In the New Age movement, you give up your ego you sacrifice uh, your oneness, your, your individual sense of identity, because we're all one. There's one great soul, and we're all just playing sort of this game together with each other, but we're all one being or one group soul or one entity or whatever the case may be. And so enlightenment is achieved by the destruction of self, which really puts the teachings, if you know anything about Alistair Crowley and his teachings, that really puts Crowley on the right-hand path. Because, and I am I know I'm, I'm, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about here, but uh, Crowley used uh, the Golden Dawn system, which was based in Kabbalah and the Tree of Life and ascending the Sephiroth and the Tree of Life. And there's this space between – uh in the upper part of the diagram, there's this space called the abyss. And to get into the higher world, a person had to cross the abyss. And in order to cross the abyss, there had to be a complete destruction of self so that really the, the self ceases to exist and blends with the universe. So Crowley, at least as far as I understand Crowley – was trying to unite with the universe. So here's the right-hand path. There is a right way out there. There is a higher power that's either God or some deity or the universe or some oneness. And enlightenment is really like what Crowley would, would say, crossing the abyss, losing the self, giving the self up to blend with... The universe. So again, it's this idea of self-sacrifice. That's right-hand path, but there's certain characteristics with it. There's, there's, uh, it's it's very communal. You're told what to believe. You're told what your experiences are supposed to be. And it's all about service. It's all about self-sacrifice. It's all about those kinds of things. The left-hand path, on the other hand, the left-hand path is the personal spiritual journey. I love how Joseph Campbell identifies the left-hand path. You can put in LHP or left-hand path and type in Joseph Campbell and you can find like a three-minute talk that he gives. It's just an excerpt from a talk that he was giving on the hero's journey. But he talks about the left-hand path as a path that steps outside of the groupthink, that steps outside of uh societal norms of society and other people telling you what's right for you so that you can pursue from within and find your own bliss. <laughs> and, and I so like that. I so resonate with that. So, so that's the right path for me. Now, l- l- left-hand, being left-handed was considered something sinister. In fact, the word uh, left comes from the Latin where we get the word sinister, which is why in the Catholic Church... If you were left handed and you went to parochial school, they would smack your hand with the ruler or they'd tie it or something so that you had to learn to write with your right hand. As a left handed person, I cannot imagine the trauma of that. I mean think about the stuff that we that we do to each other. But I really do think that the left hand path is the the, the path forward for humanity, and I, I think we're seeing elements of that. So I want to bring it full circle and talk about the last thing that I said at the introduction that I was going to talk about, some similarities between the time period in which Jesus lived and the times in which we're living now. Now, one of the major similarities, and you can you don't have to accept this, but astrologically, now we know uh that the theory is now that uh, our solar system is moving through space. And so just like the moon rotates around the Earth and the Earth and the planets rotate around the sun, the sun and the entire solar system is also rotating, uh, albeit at a much, I don't want to say slower pace because I don't know the, the physics, but certainly from our perspective, a much slower perceptual pace. I hope you understand what I mean by that. That leads to this thing called the precession of the equinox. That there are uh, constellations that govern each age. I don't have time to get into all this, but I'm sure if you go into my YouTube channel, you can find where I talk about this. And so, this, the, the, these, these energies, these patterns define the nature of certain ages that we're in, and. So when Jesus comes along, the age of Pisces is beginning. Pisces is going to become the dominant constellation. And with that, the belief is then there's an energy and a shift a change. So you have Jesus. This is what I want you to see. You have Jesus in the narrative challenging the powers that be, challenging conventional thinking. He really is going the, the left-hand way. When you read the Gospels, that's, that's why they said he has a demon. The miracles that he's doing, he's doing by the power of Elzebub. And if you're interested in this stuff, you're a Bible nerd like me, uh Elaine Pagels has a book. Uh I think it's The Origin of Satan. Yeah, The Origin of Satan, where she talks about the political influences on the Gospels themselves and how... The the earlier Gospels really blamed Rome for the crucifixion, so like Mark's Gospel. The later Gospels, like John's Gospel, really puts it squarely with the Jews, and that had to do with the Jewish-Gentile, Jewish-Christian political conflicts and uh, all kinds of stuff with that. And so it's an interesting evolution. But what I want to point out is, that Jesus was a threat to the political system because he wouldn't conform, and he was a threat to the religious system because he wouldn't conform. And out of that nonconformity, this is what's so ironic, out of that nonconformity then came a whole new age marked by, at least in the Western world, Christian conformity. But here's the, the thing that I find interesting. When you look at the descriptions of the religious systems of the day from the scriptures themselves. There's corruption in it. There's hypocrisy in it. Go read Matthew chapter 23. Jesus says, you know, you're whitewashed sepulchres. You look good on the outside, but inwardly you're full of dead man's bones. And I gotta tell you, that was exactly my experience. Everything up until 2016, everything on the outside looked good, you know. For me, everything externally, circumstantially, everything I wanted in ministry was happening for me, but inwardly I was disconnected from myself. Inwardly I was dead. And so I had to come, I had to come to grips with that. And then in some of the writings of Paul, the description of the religious system of the age is that you're selfish and you're hateful and you're, you know, you're all these things. And so you, you're the light bearers. You're the right hand path group. You're the ones talking about universal love and things like this. And yet there's more hatred coming out of there. There is more hatred and just vile stuff coming from pulpits today from people who claim to embrace a teacher who taught love, a teacher who taught the golden rule, a teacher who taught forgive and love your enemies. Um, invariably you know on social media when uh, I was more active and I would get blasted or I would get cussed out or cursed out uh, almost always you would go to the profile and it would be a follower of Christ uh, <laughs> and so those that were supposedly so what what what's being exposed here is those that were supposedly bearing the light were actually, the ones that were reproducing darkness (laughs) and the one who was being cursed at as having the power of Beelzebub was the one who was bringing the light of the new age. And so we're also at a new changing of the guard here where we're moving out of the age of Pisces and into the age of Aquarius. And I think everything that can be shaken will be shaken and people are Waking up and waking out of the systems of the former age, this is why we see this massive move of deconstruction right now within the Christian faith, and moving more into this sort of individual awakening. And so here's what I want to say. I think all of our systems are going to have to change. I think everything that can be shaken will be shaken. I think it's religion, science, philosophy, social structures, political structures. That's why we're seeing so much upheaval and it's difficult. It's difficult. It's hard for us out there because we're living in the information age and yet we're, we're more divided over information as people than we ever have been before. We, we, we allow ourselves to be taken captive by political narratives that have nothing to do with what's actually going on in our own community. We're upset about things that are going on in Washington DC. We're maybe upset about writing that's happening in other places or events that are so far removed from the problems in our own community. And yet it divides us from each other within our own community so that we can't come together and solve those problems. And, and that's just this, this unraveling. But here's what's so crazy. You got both sides. You got one side. That's on the far right and that thinks they're part of a great awakening you've got another side that's on the far left that calls themselves woke or maybe they get called woke i don't know i i, I don't I don't care I mean it's hard to navigate. All that stuff, but how do we vet our information? How do we know the sources that we're getting information from are true? Nobody trusts the government anymore we don't trust science we don't trust medicine we don't and uh, in, in in many cases rightfully so in many cases rightfully so you know there's uh, corporate greed uh our our financial systems we're seeing an ever increasing Uh, divide between the haves and the have-nots, which I personally think is a result of economics, but I'll leave that alone. Um, So at the end of the day, I think we have to be true to ourselves. We have to find what works for us, and we have to not be afraid to take different aspects of different traditions. And so for me, I will never abandon the spiritual path, Because spirituality is so much a part of what I enjoy about life. Spirituality is so much a part of who I am in my essence. It's part of my predisposition. Yes, it is part of my confirmation bias. But at least I'm aware of it, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that confirmation bias. I I realize this is something that works for me. And so I want to be a voice. I want to be someone that enters the conversation for people who have stripped away the faith of their childhood, they've gone through some kind of deconstruction, but yet there's something inside them that won't let go of spirituality. And I want to suggest to you that you think about sort of this left-hand path approach, that you do less searching without and you do more seeking within, that you do less going to conferences and watching videos and more meditation. Of course, we need information and videos. If I didn't believe in that, I wouldn't be doing this. Uh, some, <laughs> but I'm saying, let your own light shine. Find what works for you. And that includes redefining your own moral code, your own code of honor, and your own ethics to think about your own needs for love and connection, And your own responsibilities to your community and your own responsibilities to people around you. Just because you go the left-hand path. There are a lot of people that embrace the left-hand path because they just want to give the middle finger to every institution. And they just want to be contrary and they just want to be selfish and narcissistic. I I get the left-hand path probably appeals to people that are more on the narcissistic spectrum of things. But you don't have to be that way. (laughs) You, you can, you can think about how you want to live your life according to your own rules, if you will, while at the same time understanding that you have obligations and responsibilities and ways in which we need to live together as a society. So you can be 100% on the left-hand path and be love and light. (laughs) By that I mean expressing genuine love, genuine compassion, genuine empathy, genuine concern. But it's okay. Like, don't drive yourself crazy obsessively trying to find out what's the truth as though the truth can be objectively known outside your own consciousness. And I think you'd be much better served to go within and find what is your truth and then live out your truth. And, and I think that we're going to see more and more and more of that in this age of Aquarius, that we're going to see more. So the uh, so left-hand path would be finding your own bliss. The left-hand path would be expressing the fullness of who you are. The left-hand path would be letting your light shine, not being outshone, by someone else, not from the position of envy or even competition, but just from the standpoint of i 'm going to honor my path i 'm going to honor my nature i 'm going to honor who i am i 'm going to honor my point of consciousness i 'm going to let my light shine i 'm going to maximize my the the fullness of my potential and when the fullness of my potential is 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 maximized and i 'm living congruent with who I am because I didn't sacrifice any of who I was for the sake of the group think. Now I'm coming from a very powerful position that I can actually better contribute to the community and I can actually better serve the community. So I hope this was helpful for you. Thank you. If you watch this entire thing, listen to these entire ramblings, I love you. You're, you're my kind of person, uh, obviously. Uh, but thanks again for joining and for listening and, uh, everybody that's watching live. I can't see your comments. Um, I really got to up my game with my uh, technology. I say that every year and you can tell I'm not, uh, hyper motivated to, to do that. So thank you. Um, I appreciate every single one of you. And, uh, again, wherever you are, I hope that you're having a terrific day, night, evening or whatever. And, uh, namaste.